0: Please turn with me in your Bibles to Psalm chapter 1. If you don't have a Bible with you, it can be found in the pew rack on page 650. Psalm chapter 1. How blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, nor stand in the path of sinners, nor sit in the seat of scoffers, But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law he meditates day and night. He will be like a tree firmly planted by streams of water, which yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither, and in whatever he does he prospers. The wicked are not so, but they are like chaff which the wind drives away. Therefore the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the assembly of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous." But the way of the wicked will perish. Father, I come now with your people into your presence afresh where we have been lingering and ask for your help in this message. I ask that you would give your people a heart to hear and understand and give to me an anointing to speak in sentences and with a demeanor that is worthy of this great scripture. I thank you for your word and that you've not left us to ourselves. And I ask that you would guard us now from Satan, who's the great scripture twister. And that you would cause us to speak the truth and to hear the truth and to be moved in affections that are proportionate to the worth of the truth that we hear. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, well, The first question you should be asking is, why does he choose a text like this to begin prayer week because the text isn't about prayer it doesn't even have the word prayer in it. In answer to that question, there are two or three answers I could give one would be to to ask you what book of the Bible is this the first chapter of? So tell me, it's the first chapter of the book of and the Psalms historically has been known as the prayer book of the church. So really, the question is, why does Psalm one begin the prayer book of the church? if It's not about prayer. The, the Psalter, Psalter, fancy word for the book of Psalms, the Psalter is filled with prayers. And everybody probably in this room who is old enough to have a little pain in your life, knows why the book is in the Bible. Because everybody goes to the Psalms. My wife lives in the Psalms. Sometimes I wonder if my wife reads any book but the Psalms. I said that in the first service almost so she could hear it. If I default to my wife at the breakfast table and say, you lead this morning, we go to the Psalms. And if there's any crisis in our lives, he goes to the Psalms. The Psalms is there with the words for joy. The Psalms is there with the word for pain. The Psalms is everything. It's a great prayer book. It carries us to God over and over again. But it begins with Psalm 1 about the Bible or about the law of God, the instruction of God. Now, there's this, so the second reason is, and I think it's the answer to both those questions, why do I begin? Why does the Psalter begin? It's because the Word of God inspires prayer, informs prayer, and incarnates prayer. It inspires prayer by... Commanding us to pray, giving us promises of what will happen if we do pray and telling us stories about great prayers like Elijah. You can, like Elijah, being a person of like affection with him, can stop the rain with prayer. So it inspires prayer. It informs prayer. By giving us content for our prayers. The people who pray with most power and most effect and most authenticity have their prayers shot through with Bible. They just pray Bible. So it informs prayer and it incarnates prayer in this sense. One of the main prayers that we ought to be praying always is for the expansion of the kingdom of God through the conversion of lost people here and in the unreached peoples of the world. But nobody is saved by prayer alone. You agree with that? Nobody is saved by prayer alone. There must be word. It's called gospel. Christ died for sinners, rose again, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, you will be saved. That word must be spoken. Until it is, prayer saves nobody. So we can pray till we're blue in the face for our neighbor. And if we never speak the gospel, we're hypocrites. I jumped ahead a little bit in the Ramadan prayer guide this month that we're all, I don't know, a lot of us are praying over these groups of peoples throughout the world that are all celebrating Ramadan and who are trying to get to God and don't know Christ. And I read about the Dujiang people or something like that, I don't know how to pronounce it, in the northern provinces of China, about 350,000 Muslim people in this people group, uh, 595 mosques, one for every 30 families, descendants of the Mongolian tribal warlords who have no Christians, none, zero, not one, not two, but none and no missionaries and no people telling them the gospel. Well, let me tell you. You can pray for these people as long as you want. And if nobody goes in response to your prayer, nobody's getting saved. So the point is, the Word incarnates prayer. So if you pray for your son, your father, your uncle, your aunt, your neighbor, your colleague, your roommate, what you should be praying is that, Your prayer be incarnate with a powerful saving word through a missionary or through through yourself. Where did you go? There you are. Or through somebody that will open their mouth to the gospel. It incarnates prayer. So, I'm going to begin with Psalm 1. Because I think the word of God this year at Bethlehem is going to be central and it's going to inspire and going to inform and going to incarnate prayer. So let's go to the song. It begins with a blessing. Blessed is the man. And it sucks you in, doesn't it? Right there. I want a blessing. I want to be a blessed person. I want to be a blessed person. What does that word mean? Both the Greek and the Hebrew mean happy, but it's kind of happiness that's that's rooted in in physical and moral and spiritual well-being. It's not light things, not a frivolous thing. And so we want that very, very much. So how do we get it? What marks this blessed and happy person? Well, it says he doesn't do something and he does do something first. He doesn't walk in the counsel of the wicked. He doesn't stand in the way of sinners and he doesn't sit in the seat of scoffers. That's what he does not do. The blessed person doesn't do that. What does he do? Next verse. But his delight is in the law of the Lord and on his law. He meditates day and night. So, the ways divide, right, don't they? Where is your heart? Where is your delight? Where is your pleasure? Where are your values? Do you find yourself swept into the words, the counsel of the wicked? And then beginning to not only listen to the words, but walk in the paths And then not only walk in the paths, but settle down into the seat. You see the progression? Walk, stand, sit. I think that's a progression into settledness. You can hear a word. You can walk away. And you can settle into a seat. And if you want to be free from that and not be Drawn by the counsel of the wicked. Swept in the way of sinners. Settling into the seat of scoffers. You need delight in something else. That's the key. So you got the alternatives out there in verse 1 and 2. You can do those three things and move into a settled commitment to wickedness eventually. Or you can fight that. With a superior joy. His delight is in the law of the Lord. It's a battle for joy. Life is a battle for joy. Where are you gonna find your joy, your delight? In the Word and all that the Word is about, or in the way of the world and all that the world is about? Now there are three illustrations of this blessedness that comes through delighting and meditating on the law of the Lord. Number one, you will be, if you delight in the law of the Lord and meditate on it day and night, and we'll come back to those two words, you will be like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season. That's blessing number one. It says, blessed are you. You'll be fruitful. Blessing number two, your leaf will not wither. That is, you'll be a durable person in times of drought. And three, you'll prosper in everything he does. He prospers. Let's take those one at a time and make sure we understand what they mean and don't mean. The first one is, if you delight in the law of the Lord and meditate on the word of God day and night, You will be a fruitful person. It says, you will yield your fruit in season. Oh, for more fruitful people. You know them. The mark of the fruitful person is that when you get around them, you find yourself nourished. You don't work at it. It just happens. You get in the presence of a person who has been delighting in the law of the Lord has been meditating on the word of God day and night and what happens is with no effort at all in their presence you eat you are fed you leave them and you feel like that was good you know a little more about God you hear a little more about promises. You feel some encouragement. Maybe you were pricked in conscience, but there was something to hold you up as well. A fruitful person's limbs have fruit hanging down, and when you're in their presence, you are nourished and refreshed and you eat. And we want to be like that. What a church that would be, wouldn't it? What a church. I mean, here we are. What, maybe 450, 500 people in this room? I don't know. 500 trees like that in this room. You all look very skeptical. No, no, not all of you. Some of you don't. But many of you look very skeptical. Like, well, I'm not like that. Or it's never going to happen. Or... That's for preachers or, this is not for preachers. This is life. If you will delight in the law of the Lord, in the Word of God, the instruction of the Lord, and meditate on it day and night, you can't help but be Nourishing to other people when they're around you. You can't keep it in if you've been delighting in it and meditating on it. Scratch you and you bleed Bible. You will be oozing Bible. And Bible builds people. And therefore, there's a prescription here for a very wonderful 1999 for you. You don't want to be One of those people who people don't want to be around because they always drain them. Now, there have to be drainers in the world. Otherwise, otherwise, people would not be called upon to love at the extent that they should love. But you don't want to be one and you shouldn't be one. There will be drainers, but you shouldn't be one. You should be fillers. And no matter where you are in your spiritual pilgrimage right now, you might not even be a Christian in this room. You don't even believe in the Bible or Jesus. You, in this year, can become a nourishing, life-giving fountain of joy if you will do what this text is delight in the law of the Lord and meditate on it day and night. You will be like a tree planted by streams of water sucking up God's great staff of grace and it will come out in the fruit of love and joy and peace and patience and goodness and kindness and meekness and faithfulness and self-control and when people walk into your presence they will be blessed and they'll want to come back Maybe the problem of loneliness will begin to go away. Not because you've been looking on for somebody to eat their fruit, but now you've focused for a while on being fruitful. Second part of the blessing is your leaf won't wither. You see that? The leaf does not wither. Now the picture there is got some hot winds blowing, and you've got some drought and Leaves are withering everywhere. And yours aren't. You want to be like that? You look around America, or you look around the church, and a hot wind blows. Maybe persecution, depending on where you live. Maybe rejection. Maybe bad financial times are coming. We had good times, right? Good times in 99. Maybe not. I mean, 98, maybe not in 99. Maybe that's going to be some of the hot winds that blow. Maybe the marriage is going to become real fragile. Oh, oh the tears. Oh, the tears that I deal with in this church over marriages. Mm. Sometimes I wish God had created another way to have kids. That's a real jaundiced opinion coming out of out of some hard times, forgive me, but I ache for the tears. That's going to be some of the hard times. That's going to be some of the hot winds and many leaves are going to wither. But yours don't have to. Yours don't have to, no matter how hard it is. They really don't. They don't have to wither. Or it might be a child that lets you down and flips out and throws away the faith and lives with a boyfriend or girlfriend and breaks your heart. and Who knows what the hot winds are going to be for you in 99. They're going to come. They're going to come. And this text says, if you will delight in the Word of God and meditate on it day and night, you are like a tree planted by streams of water And the reason your leaves aren't withering is not because there's no wind blowing, not because you're not being beat, but because your roots are in the river. That's the difference. Maybe it's a good place to say a word about Y2K. A lot of talk today about Y2K and... The drought is coming next January and how we ought to get ready and stockpile food and water and generators and maybe a gun so nobody will take our food. Detect any cynicism. I have a couple of prophetic words about Y2K. Um, The first one is this. The greatest need in January 2000 from the first tick of the clock on will be for people who are filled with the word of God and not filled with bread and water. If you want to stockpile something in 1999, stockpile these verses in here. Because that will be the need, believe me. If the winds blow, the same need will be there from Christians. Christians! Christians! What do Christians have to give to Y2K? What the world wants? What the world thinks they need? I detect a slight bit of self-serving here. That concerns me deeply in the wider evangelical movement. A slight bit of hypocrisy. Which leads to my second word of prophecy. Here's my second word of prophecy. John Piper, prophet. Speaking. Nothing is going to happen in January 2000. That is not today happening in Sudan. Nothing is going to happen in January 2000. That is not Already happening in Nicaragua. Nothing is going to happen in January of 2000 that is not already happening on the fourth floor of Augustana, nursing home. Nothing is going to happen in January of 2000 that is not already happening to 34 million AIDS victims. And millions of their children, most of whom are in sub-Sahara Africa. If you are wise enough to say, how shall we love in Y2K? Then open now your eyes and pray, for Y2K is here today. So if you come up to me after the service and say, well, wait a minute. Is it wise or is it not wise to make some preparations? My answer is going to be, it may be and it may not be. Because biblical wisdom has a lot more to do than whether we preserve our lives. If our motives, if we are pure church, if we love the hurting, Believe me, there is so much to do today that when 2000 comes, you won't even know it's arrived. You'll be so busy helping the people who now have no heat, who now have no food, who now are sick, who now have no refrigeration. I will feel good about our church getting on this bandwagon when I see our church riding the bandwagon. This afternoon, I'm not impressed, and I warn you it may or it may not be wise. Fruit on the limb leaf that does not wither in January of 2000 when people need people who are filled with the word of God and faith and confidence and ready to suffer who can say what shall separate us from the love of Christ shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword no in all these things, we are more than conquerors to him who loved us. The world needs people who suffer with them and know how to suffer to the glory of God. And the third blessing is in everything they do, they prosper. Well, now, really? Hmm. 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 What does that mean? Well, let's just let it stand for a minute. There's a lot of prospering if you will do this text. If you delight in the law of the Lord and meditate on it day and night, and therefore are weaned away from walking in the counsel of the ungodly, And in the path of the sinners and settling into the seat of scoffers, you probably won't get AIDS. Probably, you might. Millions of innocent AIDS victims in the world, especially children. But you probably won't. So there is an unbelievably precious thing here. If you walk with God, you spare yourself manifold miseries in life. But you get lots of more miseries in life. That's what I want to stress. Because the world is happy to hear the other. Oh, of course, we don't want AIDS and we want lots of food and we want lots of drink and we want good finances and we want health. The world knows all about that. Why should we want to be just like the world and want what they want and then just have thank you God at the end of it and call ourselves Christians? We ought to want things that the world doesn't give a rip about and love them in suffering in the midst of crisis. So I think at the root of this text, in everything they do, they prosper is something more than. My business will succeed. My marriage will succeed. My kids will all go straight, and I never get sick. Never have a car accident. I think there's something more than that going on here, and I think it's something like this. In fact, this is not a bad exegesis in the hymn that we sang. Their lives are nourished like a tree set by riverside, riverside. Its leaf is green. Its fruit is sure. So all their works abide. That's the interpretation. So all their works abide. What is that? So all their works abide. They will prosper in everything. Is that a faithful interpretation of Psalm one? It sounds like it came from First Corinthians fifteen fifty eight, which says, "Therefore, my beloved brethren." Be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is never in vain. I believe that if in 1999 you start a little business, home business, work business, and you, you are faithful, full of integrity, full of honesty, the product or the service that you have is a good one. People need it and you want to deliver it at a fair price with employees that are being treated right and and model Christ-like holiness and righteousness and you do that little business and it fails and you're back looking for another job at the end of the year. You will have prospered. And that will not have been done in vain. It's written in a book. And at the judgment day, it's going to be read to your great glory. He was honest. He treated him fair. He gave them their right salaries. He did his best. He relied upon the Lord. It was my providential will that something else come after this in his life. But this is written down forever. It will be celebrated unlike many great successful business stories that are shot through with the rot of bribery and corruption, which will be forgotten forever and did not prosper forever. Now, the reason I think that's a right interpretation of this text is because the next verse says, dealing with this whole problem about how, what about the wicked who prosper? The Psalms have a lot of places where they say, what about the prosperous wicked and the suffering righteous? And this verse four says, the wicked are not so. They're not like these trees planted by water. They're like chaff. They're like chaff, which the wind drives away. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment of. And now we get a clue how this writer's thinking, just like Psalm 73, which began with, oh, God, how long, how long will the wicked prosper? And you get to verse 19. Behold their end. Same thing here. They're not going to stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the assembly of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous. But the way of the wicked will perish. Yes, there is a prospering in everything you do by faith. Because God will take it, no matter how the world judges it. No matter how it it may look like it didn't come to much in this world. If it was done by faith, it prospers. It lasts forever. It's written in the book. It's an occasion for everlasting praise. And what other prosperity is there in the world that counts ultimately? Yes, things can go better for us and will in many ways if we follow the Lord's way. But much pain will come and many failures will follow also. And how we handle them and whether we deal with them in faith is whether we prosper in them. Which leaves me now just to say a couple of words about, all right, if that's the blessing, fruitful, durable and prosperous forever. Then what is the means to it? This blessing. We want this blessing. I believe almost everybody in this room wants this blessing. You want to be a fruitful person. A durable person in drought. A prosperous person forever. How do I get there? And I'll mention part of the answer now. And then pick it up next week. As we talk about praying without ceasing. But part of the answer is given right here. You, you meditate on the law of the Lord Day and night. Now, meditation in the Hebrew is mutter. Mutter or speak. When you do that within and to yourself, you are meditating, speaking the word of God and speaking about the word of God to yourself. And I don't see how it can be done day and night without memorizing scripture. And so I plead with you, whether you do the fighter verse system, you don't need to do this system, but this is a good system, or your own system, let 1999 be a year of memory. Let me illustrate the way it works for me. Coming to the end of the year, 1999, I was reading, like many of you, the minor prophets, trying to get through the Old Testament by the end of the year, and I stumbled upon, came upon Micah 718. Which is the underpinning of a hymn by Samuel Davies. Who is a pardoning God like thee? And who has grace so rich and free? Now, I love that hymn so much. I said, I'm going to memorize this verse because this is the foundation of the hymn. And the verse goes like this Who is a God like thee, pardoning iniquity and passing over the transgression of the remnant of his inheritance? He will not retain his anger forever. Because he delights in steadfast love. Now that verse I took into my heart and mind for three days. And I fed on it for three days. I didn't memorize other verses for three days. I just stayed there because it is so rich. And I fed my soul on forgiveness I fed my soul on pardon. I'm an imperfect husband. I'm an imperfect father. I'm an imperfect pastor. I'm going to get chastised for this message. I know I am. So what do you do to survive as a husband, a father, a wife, a daughter, a pastor, a manager at work that gets criticized over and over again? What do you do? You savor The mercy of God. So you hold it there, and 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 I don't know how it works for you, but to me, generalized thoughts about God don't minister to my soul. You know, you say, "Oh, but John, you know He's a forgiving God. He's you don't need to memorize the Scripture. You know that He's forgiving God." Yeah, but when He says it to me in His own words, what a power! And so He said it to me for three days. It is God-like of me to forgive, John. It is God-like of me to forgive. And then I moved on to the next half of it where it says he doesn't retain his anger forever because he delights in steadfast love. And I thought, wow, what practical implications for my life and what, what theological implications. The practical implications are, oh, John, oh, John, don't love anger. Don't delight in anger. Be angry and sin not. The sin of anger is when you start delighting in unduly extended anger. And all the dangers in marriage, for example, of beginning to savor anger, starting to savor it. It feels good. It feels right. At least I can be angry. If I can't fix it, I can be angry. That's a snake that'll bite you. And it says God moves on because he delights. And so move on, move on, leave it, lay it down. Don't let the sun go down on it. I heard that. I took it home. And I saw it theologically. Wow! The implications for the issue of sovereignty and free will here. You were woof. Really? <laughs> Where? I'd like that problem solved. Well, look. He's angry. He knows he should be angry. God never sins in his anger. This is good that he's angry. He's choosing to be angry. But then he doesn't retain it. Because he delights in something else, which means anger isn't his favorite emotion, which means you have a layered Godhead in his emotional life, which enables him to will a thing. That he doesn't fully delight in because he delights in something else more, which solves a dozen paradoxical texts in the Bible. I'll leave that with you. There's a sermon on the free will of man and the sovereignty of God. But you take that home and all of that came from three days of savoring Micah 718. And that's what I'm asking you to do. Memorize a verse. Meditate on it day and night. In the little pieces of your life. In the car. At the dentist waiting. Wherever. Before you fall asleep at night. If you ask, how do you meditate on something at night when you're asleep? Well, you don't when you're asleep. But do you really sleep all night? And do you go to sleep immediately? And when you wake up, do you immediately get out of bed. And do you go to bed When the night starts, or is there some night before you go to bed? There's a lot of space here in life in which to meditate. I'll leave off this last point for next week, but it is this. And I hope I get you back because I need you back. I need you back to finish it. It is. But John, you've said Delighting in the Lord and in the word of the Lord is the key to meditating. And meditating is the key to being fruitful and not being in the counsel of the wicked. And so it sounds like everything kind of boils down to this issue of your heart's delight. And frankly, I don't. So aren't you going to finish the sermon and tell me how to get there? And the answer is, I'm going to get criticized see, because I'm 16 minutes over time. And uh, I don't worry about the criticism too much, but you got appointments to go. And I do have a lot more to say, and I'm just going to keep on going next Sunday. So if if the question is burning in you right now, and I hope it is, how can I get my heart to delight in the, in the law of God so that it's not a drudgery? I don't want to enter 1999 just saying, oh, God, he said I'm supposed to read my Bible every day again. And I find it so hard to read my Bible every day. Would you please come back and let me help you? With this issue of delight. Let's pray. Lord. I confess I'm a sinner. I don't need to make it public because it's known. And we come to you so thankful. That the word that we are to meditate on day and night is Permeated by words like the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, abounding in steadfast love, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. It's words like that that we love to memorize because we need them so often. Would you come and bless your people, Lord? Stimulate them now to memorize the Bible. Stimulate them to pray in prayer week and all year long, knowing that prayer is the key to delight. That's what I want to say next week. That prayer is the key to delight. And so, Lord, would you guard us from sin? Fill us with joy. Fill us with righteousness. Take away anger. Take away our fears and release us into this fruitful, durable, everlasting prosperity that this psalm holds out to those who delight in you and meditate day and night. In Jesus' name I pray, and all the people said, Amen. I'll stay here at the front and pray when anybody wants to pray about prayer or the word, but you're dismissed.